District of Conservation is sponsored by the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, better known as CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thanks for listening to the program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Natural gas has been a hot button topic of late. From the pausing of LNG export projects upcoming ones in particular due to pushback from climate activists and 25-year-old TikTokers who wouldn't last a day without fossil fuels, believe it or not, to federal rulemaking, which is making gas appliances, gas-powered appliances, whether it's your gas stove to gas furnace to water heater and everything under the sun, near impossible with trying to supposedly increase energy efficiency standards all the while making it harder for manufacturers of gas-powered appliances to operate under said improvements to energy efficiency standards, which is why I brought on my guest today, Stuart Salters, Vice President of Government Relations at the American Public Gas Association. Stuart invited me to address his organization at their most recent fly-in in Washington, D.C. area, And I was able to talk about three appliances, the aforementioned appliances that are powered by natural gas. And I figured I would bring him onto the program to talk about how his organization, which is a little different than what you hear about natural gas uh, from some other trade associations and what APGA primarily focuses on is representing America's publicly owned natural gas local distribution companies, LDCs. APGA represents the interests of public gas before Congress, federal agencies, and other energy stakeholders by developing regulatory and legislative policies that further the goals of our members. In addition, APGA organizes meetings, seminars, and workshops with a specific goal to improve the safety, reliability, operational efficiency, and regulatory environment in which public gas systems operate. Their mission overall is to advocate for community-owned natural gas distribution systems, promoting safety, security, competitiveness, and sustainability of the direct use of natural gas. And natural gas is still a very big part of our electricity generation. I believe last I saw from the Energy Information Administration, which is a government agency, I think natural gas accounts for 33, 34% of utility-scale electricity generation in the United States. So it's a big chunk of energy in addition to other fossil fuels, coal, and gas as well. But I think it's one of the bigger chunks of it nowadays because it's very reliable, it's very clean, very portable. So I'll let Stuart take it away from here to talk about APGA and some of the threats to natural gas that could affect you if your energy utility company is publicly owned and belongs to a group like APGA. Natural gas policy is a very red-hot issue this year. You all have seen the different rules to ban gas stove appliances, gas furnaces. You've seen the rules relatedly to pause or strictly limit 
LNG export projects. But we're going to talk to one industry expert I've gotten to know over the last few months who had me speak at their annual fly-in. Really thrilled to have Stuart Salters of American Public Gas Association, where he serves as vice president of government relations, to come talk about what they're up to, what they kind of oversee, and and why listeners should care about natural gas policies. Stuart, thank you so much for joining the program. Yes, glad to be here and have the conversation with you. How did you get interested in these ideas and what led you to work for APGA? Yeah. Let's start with that. Yeah. No, um, I guess I have a little bit of a unique career path. You can call it that. Um, My uh, education, my college degree is actually in civil engineering. And so I had the opportunity to uh, be a civil engineer in the energy industry. I worked for a um, integrated oil company. I worked at a refinery and then was able to do um, upstream production engineering work. So kind of did a little bit of the downstream, did a little bit of the upstream um, before some reason uh, I decided to do government affairs and government relations and um, moved to DC to work for the American Petroleum Institute. Um, you know, kind of dove right in when it came to energy policy, um, worked mostly at API on pipeline safety policy, but then in 2019 got the opportunity to move to the American Public Gas Association, um, initially had a more of a regulatory focus and um, in 2020 moved into the VP of government relations role to kind of oversee our regulatory and uh, legislative involvement. And so it's a great group. I mean, I enjoyed my time at API, but definitely really appreciate how our members are serving the consumers directly. So they're the ones, the utilities around the country um, that are that are public utilities, so where the city owns the utility, um, but they're the ones delivering the gas to the home. I mean, they're the ones that provide the energy folks need to cook their food, to heat their water, to heat their homes, um, all that good stuff. Could you speak more to your organization and how you guys differ a little bit from some of the other trade associations that engage in the natural gas space? Yeah. So we are unique in that our members, um, like I mentioned, are um, essentially Elements of the cities are, are, are public entities and, and public can be confusing because, you know, there are publicly traded companies, but public in the sense that, um, they're not owned by a shareholder. They're, they're part of a, a government. And so our members are not for profit. So there's no board of directors that they have to answer to. Um, their board is a utility board or a city council. Um, their CEO technically would be like the mayor um, or you know maybe the president of the utility board. So there is that close relationship with the community they serve um, when it comes to our members. You know, other than that, um, <clears throat> they do differentiate from maybe like a transmission pipeline company because they're the ones that collect the natural gas from those big pipelines that traverse multiple states. Um, you know, they, they get that gas and then provide it to the homes, the businesses, the industries, you know, mostly smaller industries uh, within their service territories. I got to know that, of course, um, when I came to the fly-in and learned a little bit on the differentiation between public utilities and others who kind of operate in this space And your members were very concerned about certain policies, especially 
conservation energy related rules, um, especially those coming from the Department of Energy. So what are your members, what is your organization concerned about as it relates to, let's say, regulatory rulemaking being handed out by the different agencies? What's kind of top of mind for all of you? Yeah, for us, it's really the Department of Energy's appliance efficiency rulemakings. Um, Our members, like I mentioned, they serve their neighbors, their communities. Um, They serve them by providing the energy that powers um, or that fuels, you know, a furnace in your home or your gas range or your gas water heater. And it's unfortunate that um, this administration, under this administration, the Department of Energy has kind of taken to, um, I don't know what other way to describe it, but just an electrify everything approach. And so when you think about our members, um, that's really, that that hurts <laughs> what they do and how they serve their communities. Um, I think if you look at the, the, the facts, um, it's clearly evident that natural gas supports the environment and how, and what we're trying to, it supports our country and how we're trying to decrease emissions. Um, And then it's affordable. Natural gas is a more affordable fuel than electricity. Um, And so when you think about these policies that are being put forward um, and it's, and it's interesting because it's not overt, like you've seen some cities like in Berkeley that just Berkeley, California, that basically just say we ban new natural gas hookups. What this Department of Energy is doing is they're raising the appliance efficiency level so high that a natural gas appliance can't um, can't comply. And and I agree that we need to move forward as a country in terms of you know supporting environmental goals. But it just doesn't make sense um, when you think about how energy is delivered to your home. You know, let's just say, just for the sake of argument, it can be done by electricity or it can be done by natural gas. Well, when you think about electricity, a lot of electricity is generated by natural gas. And so you take that natural gas molecule, it comes up from the wellhead, it's put on a pipeline, sent to a power generation facility. Um, and then it's converted to electricity and sent to your home. At each phase in that supply chain, you lose the potential energy of that gas molecule. So when you think about energy uh, delivered to your home just as natural gas, you don't have those steps in the supply chain. And so when you take natural gas and use it directly in your home, you're using 90% of the potential energy, whereas you take natural gas converted to electricity and then use it in your home as electricity, you're only using about 30% of that potential energy. So I kind of dove off into the weeds there. So let me know if I need to clarify, but hopefully your listeners see that, you know, this electrify everything approach is not achieving these goals that they say it's achieving. Right. And as it relates to a couple appliances that I had mentioned during your fly-in, um, one in particular that was interesting or more, more top of mind was the gas furnace regulation. So they want to move it from an 80% to 95% efficiency rate, which would make it a lot more expensive for consumers. I think it would increase on average $500 per appliance for the cost of like moving away to this um, condensing furnace that they want to push. And then I think there's also like 2200 on average in terms of installation costs mm-hmm. uh, for gas stoves, gas stoves, that final rule was, you informed me that the final rule was handed down. 
So it went from banning 96% of models on the market to keeping 97, but we still have to be very kind of skeptical because they could twist that language, maybe change it later on, you know, never really take them at face value because it's always, you know, up for discussion. And then um, I think the, I forget what the average cost increase would have been had they done that, but um, people do think in terms of like, you know, yes, they want energy efficiency, but should it come at the cost of your pocketbook? Should it, do you, do you really have to sacrifice your livelihood to have a clean environment? And that's the question a lot of people have. Are the trade-offs worth better than, you know, keeping something that's stable, that's cost-effective for the most part, or something that works and you're familiar with in this kind of untested uh, technology or, or um, alternatives, which could actually turn out to be worse for the environment? I don't think they're thinking clearly, in my personal opinion, um, Stuart about this because the, I, I don't know if you glanced over kind of the rules. I was looking over, you know, some of these when we were doing our action center at independent women's forum, independent women's network. And the, the cost of conversion was very concerning to me. The, the, the so-called savings across the lifetime of the new appliance was very paltry. Uh, I think with the ceiling fan one, I think it was like $36 across the lifetime and then I think um, some others are like $3 across the lifetime of the new appliance and like very meager and, and paltry um, compared to what you would, you know, keep and, and have with, with the existing models. Oh, they were talking about climate uh, savings. And I don't know if that's a serious figure. You tell me. Um, they were saying that you're going to save so much in climate savings by switching over to these more fully electric or more environmentally friendly alternatives. I don't know if, if you had any you know doubts about that too, but they were saying that's going to be something that consumers will like, knowing that it's going to be a lot you know more efficient with so-called climate savings um, with that. But I don't know if those are real numbers we can really bank on. You tell me. <laughs> yes. Well, <clears throat> we're in the process of suing the Department of Energy because we don't agree with the numbers as they've put them forward. A couple of things I can maybe unpack a little bit, Gabriella. Um, you know, let me just say at the outset here, APGA, we're all of we're for all of the above energy solutions. Um, we're for energy efficiency. You know, we we agree that we need as a country we need to um, achieve goals that support our environment and don't harm our environment. Um, but it needs to be done practically, and it needs to be done. And I think you said it, not at the expense of, you know your 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 listeners they there needs to be practical solutions put forward and there can be and natural gas can be a part of that solution um and that's what's frustrating right is you you like the gas stove um the efficiency savings for the gas range even though it preserves the market a lot of the market which we are we're all for but the efficiency savings is like three dollars over 14 years yes and and so i why are we, I mean, you know, as a taxpayer, why is my taxpayer dollars funding some agency that's worried about saving $3 for a consumer over 14 years? Like, let's let's be realistic in what we're trying to do as a country to, you know, achieve our environmental goals. Um, and so I think that's just frustrating. The other frustrating thing, and I don't know if this is what you're kind of alluding to, but is the social cost of greenhouse gases. So that is a metric that um, even though um, it's never really been kind of gone through the administrative procedure, you know, never kind of gone through kind of a formal, at least as I believe, uh, a process that allowed good 
public input into how it was shaped and formed. Um, that's probably more my opinion, but I, I'll stick to it. That social cost of greenhouse gas number is so arbitrary. And, and frankly, they this administration has said it as such that they can justify any rule that they do because they say the societal benefits are such because of the social cost of greenhouse gas number. The societal benefits are such that you know, it's going to it's gonna benefit everybody if we limit fossil fuel use because of the impact to, you know, whatever, uh, based on some arbitrary number. So it's, yeah, it's definitely a frustrating um, environment, if you will, <laughs> in how we're trying to do these, uh, engage in these regulations and, and be a part of the process. It is. And, and you should be very clear about if you're an administrator or someone creating these rules, what you intend to do. But if you're saying that it has to be all geared towards, you know, the environment and not the consumer, I don't know. This is kind of my reading into this administration for sure. It seems like they put in the environment, so to speak, above people instead of balancing both on an equal footing. And, you know, we don't have to sacrifice one versus the other. And and statistics show the more you pay for certain climate provisions um, by, I think it was like a AP NORC, poll from 2019 where it said like the more people pay to like whether it's you know to make your appliance more efficient or under the guise of that or or to fight climate change the the more it increases by ten dollar increments you see actually less support for such so when it comes down to your pocketbook um people who are reasonable and say like yeah i want you know a clean environment i don't want to like have any runoff i don't want to pollute reasonable people will say like this is coming at a cost that should not be so high to me, and am I really having an immeasurable impact in lowering my footprint, lowering my impact? If I'm not, I'm not going to support this. So consumers are very privy about that. So that is why a lot of people are paying attention to these kind of rulemakings that are happening on commonly owned household appliances, especially in the natural gas space. Yeah, and it's and it's very interesting. I mean, DOE's only an own DOE's own analysis in the furnace rule shows. That consumers in the north, you know, the states where it's cold and they want a a good, efficient furnace because they run it so often because it's cold, they're switching to more innovative technology like the condensing furnace that you mentioned. But if you're in the south or if you're in a shoulder state, um, you're not operating your furnace as much at your home. And so do you really need to pay all that money for a whiz bang new technology furnace when you're only operating it, you know, a couple months out of the year. Like, I mean, there's people in Minnesota that operate their furnace six months out of the year, right? And so you're going to pay because like we've talked about, the payback is there for you as the homeowner to invest in a a higher efficiency appliance because you're going to operate it more. And so with DOE just really forcing consumers to that condensing technology, it doesn't make a lot of sense because you know, an 80, 85 efficient furnace is just as good in Florida as a 95% efficient furnace is in Minnesota. And if my listeners are interested in learning about these regulations, how it'll affect their public utility, because I bet you there are some people listening and uh, perhaps they live in a, a state or a locality where there is a public utility, um, probably represented by your organization. So if they want to learn more about this, they're concerned, what would you like them to do or where would you like to point them to? Yeah. So definitely encourage them to go to our website, uh, apga.org, apga.org. Make sure I get all the letters in there. Um, and we have um, a webpage dedicated to the furnace rule, 
Um, we put together a quick video um, that folks can look at to learn a little bit about the furnace rule in particular. Um, the website kind of covers all of the appliance efficiency rulemakings that we're monitoring. Um, but yeah, the furnace rule, you know, at this point, um, you know, it, it is, I don't want to say the most egregious because there's definitely some waiting in the wings, but it definitely maybe. um I hate to say this too, but I, I mean, I'll say it's a little sneaky, right? I mean, I think the way the Department of Energy laid out their final rulemaking, it does kind of not tell the whole story to the consumer in terms of, you know, if this rule goes final, if our, if our litigation is unsuccessful, you as the homeowner are going to come to the end of your furnace's life and you're going to think, okay, I'm just going to put in a new one of the one I had. Well, lo and behold, you had a non-condensing one and you can't buy that anymore. The HVAC people are telling you all we can give you is condensing. And then that means you got to redo, you know, the venting in your house, renovate some of your, you know, utility space, or you can do electric, you can do a heat pump, um, which, you know, at some level doesn't require that um, venting home renovation changes. And so, you know, if it's the middle of January, you just want something Maybe you don't have the time to dedicate to renovate your house for this new condensing furnace. So you're just like, give me the electric one, you know, and, and that's, that's bad. <laughs> that's, that's just wrong in my opinion. So I definitely think it's a, it's a, a policy that homeowners that your listeners need to be aware of. And I would love for their voices to be heard. Um, so that, you know, this administration knows they're, they're hurting people. They're hurting consumers. Yeah. The consumer priorities should be top of mind for a lot of people. And again, I think people have these, they think they have to choose from extremes about nature over people. And a fundamental goal here is to showcase that that's not true, that they're not mutually exclusive. They work in sync with each other. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely important, you know, to keep that kind of balance alive, um, have efficient stuff, but also not worsen your footprint. And I think in just totality with a lot of the appliance regulations I've seen, um, some of them like are very questionable outside of what you guys deal with the dishwasher stuff. They wanted to lower it from five gallons to 3.2. It require more cycling and washing. So wasting more water and <laughs> taking more time to wash dishes. So it doesn't make any sense. Uh, practically speaking, you know, in, with respect to that. So I'm just like, this is not energy. And if this is not energy efficient, if you're calling for more water to be used and you're still having to use, you know, energy, but exhaust it more. So, yeah, they have a lot of questions to answer, and it's extremely important that those who are concerned um, do – you could actually email. People don't know this. You can directly email the energy secretary and tell her that you don't like what the rules are or you would like to have more sensible policy. Um, but they make it really hard to reach out to them. That's a problem. Um, but I, I, I guess through organizations like yours, people can reach out through them. We have a portal at Independent Women's Network where uh, – supporters or people or users rather um they can go and chime in we have a like a pre-filled out form and then it directly sends to jennifer granholm secretary granholm um or you could you know write letters to the editor really make your voice heard maybe do a plea on social media i know that also works a lot with like supporting kind of uh you know so-called energy efficiency stuff or or what environmentalists are really good at is really utilizing social media to their advantage but i think consumers could kind of you know counter that 
with social media videos about saying like why I like my gas furnace or why I like my gas stove, make the similar plea too. I think there's opportunities for that, you know, if you don't weigh in on comments. Um, but is there any other like kind of final thoughts you have, Stuart, about ways for people to get engaged with your organization, support their local utilities, um, learn more about the issue outside of some of the resources you said, but any final parting thoughts you have? Yeah, I'll just say one more thing just in the terms of engagement, um, just in the realm of engagement is, you know, last week um, we saw both um, members of the Senate and members of the House of Representatives uh, bring a resolution of disapproval against the final furnace rule. So there are limitations um, to what legislators can do when it comes to um, regulatory actions. Um, you know, we've got the the checks and balances in our government, but at the same time, I think making your elected officials aware of your thoughts on what's happening within this administration and it, you know, both Republicans and Democrats, right? I mean, I think, um, you know, if you're represented by, you know, a, a Democrat, um, a Democrat elected official, like they especially need to know that you don't agree with this administration's policies. And, and it's interesting. We had, um, there was two bills that um, were introduced related to the gas the gas stove regulation, they had 20, they both had 29 Democrats support them. And that was in the house. Um, and so, you know, there, there's definitely people that are hearing what the consumers are saying, what their constituents are saying, which is good, which is what, how it's supposed to work. Um, and so I think, you know, just wanted to throw that out there in addition to what you said, but, and also too, I'll, I'll, I'll double tap the op-ed thing. I mean, I think that's huge, you know, whether it's, you know, you yourself, or if you wanted to work with a public utility, I'm happy to to help out in that connection. But um, just letting folks know your thoughts, um, you know, as as a homeowner, as a consumer, is is huge, and just you know, informing and educating and making aware, um, kind of your thoughts on these these issues and concerns. That's a good kind of call to action relating to that. But really, yes, it may feel a little difficult because they are making these rules. They have these conclusions. It's very hard to get them to change unless you sue them or threaten to sue them or public opinion is just so viscerally against it, which is what forced them to change, you know, banning almost every single gas stove model to now keeping most under what we can assume could be changed. I don't know. But uh, what they've put because of the response to the gas stove recommendation, so to speak, they reverse course and listen to consumers and groups like yours and the American Gas Association, everyone else who was engaged um, on the stakeholder front there. So they do listen to opinion when it becomes negative, overwhelmingly against them. Uh, but they're a little stubborn because they're just so wrapped up into, unfortunately, going on this net zero course that they you know, kind of ignore other things, the trade-offs with going fully to net zero, um, which I think sometimes conflicts with all of the above. Um, and it really only, you know, is very limited. It's not all of the above when you, when you charge just simply for that, but Stuart, um, anything else, any, any more links, but APGA, let's make sure everyone listening, um, is learning more about the organization, doing some research, getting involved and, and, uh, maybe keeping you guys aware of different things that happen. Um, but, but look to see what your local utility or public utility gas company is doing for those of you in the area in Virginia. I think you said, Stuart, there's only like Richmond and a handful of others, but, just as important as, you know, other gas entities, we want to obviously include the perspective of public utilities. Stuart, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these issues. Um, 
always good to get the word out. So thank you for this this chance to do. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you enjoyed what you heard today, go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify or wherever podcasts are played. Your feedback will help us reach more people. And I love to know what is on your mind after each episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement because that is our way of updating all of you listeners. And we have just hit a thousand followers on Instagram for the podcast account. Thank you very much. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you want to hear on the show, I'm all ears. I would love to hear your feedback there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.